Hailing frequencies open and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and I'm not sure if I would trust a guy who has a transparent skull with my girlfriend. I can see what he's thinking. I'm joined on this episode by Katie Nicolau. Katie is the morning meteorologist for Siouxland News on KMEG 14 in Sioux City, Iowa. She's also a crafter and cosplayer and the creator of Fandom Forecasts, reporting the weather for locales like the Star Wars and Star Trek galaxies, Duckburg, Colonial, New England, and more. Katie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited for this. Permission to come aboard granted, and let's go. Today we'll be talking about Let He Who Is Without Sin, the seventh episode of the fifth season of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. The future of the Federation in the 24th century is a paradise created by humanist ideals and maintained by science and technology. The weather grid keeps the skies clear, and egalitarian open-mindedness keeps the air clear between the varying cultures found within the Federation. But being open-minded means listening to everyone, even the few that for some reason and refuse to accept the sunny weather of Federation life for the utopia that it is. And even a utopia can still produce the seeds of fear and dissent that can lead to stormy weather. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Katie, it's great to have you on board. I always ask first-time guests to the show how they first discovered Star Trek. How did you become a Star Trek fan? I actually found it when I was in middle school, so Mm. people can probably guess kind of a rough patch in life. Uh, (laughs) But I totally, I I actually had really bad anxiety. And I watched Star Trek. It was Gambit, the two-parter from The Next Generation, which most people, that's not their first episode of Star Trek. (laughs) No. And I just saw it and I thought, okay, I kind of like that. And I started watching it. And through watching it, I kind of learned how to think scientifically. And it was very helpful for me and almost healing. And it helps me to get through my anxiety. And I've just been watching it ever since. And I really try and get as many people as I can to watch the show because it's just such a big impact in my life. And I, I feel like it can help others too. Yeah, I agree. And that's so interesting, Gambit. I remember seeing that episode when I was young. And as a kid, like nowadays we're all super fans. We've got all the shows stacked up on streaming services. And I remember, you know, back in the day, it's really hard to sometimes find the episode that you're looking for. And as a kid, you you can't always keep to that schedule of always watching the show when it's on. And so I think I had drifted away a little bit from, from TNG, although I still was a huge Star Trek fan. And I remember that came on and I remember seeing Picard in like plain clothes or what serves for plain clothes in their universe, not in a <laughs> uniform, and thinking, what's going on in this episode? And then, oh no, the Enterprise thinks he's dead and they're and they're and he's have to, he has to like act like a tough guy around all these other aliens and I thought like what what happened to the show I gotta dive back in and find out what's going on here exactly it's so intriguing you want to know more and I'm just so glad that was the episode I started with because (laughs) it just it hooked me right from the start you get that effect and maybe you didn't get this just as a new fan but they do that on Star Trek well they'll they'll kill off a character quote unquote and then everybody has to like really sell that like well data you got to put a new shirt on now and because everybody's gonna (laughs) move up a chair but we know of course as viewers that that person will be back but I always like how they try to try to really sell that Exactly. They have a contract. You know they're still alive. (laughs) They'll be back. (laughs) So you are a morning meteorologist uh, on the news in Sioux City. How did you first know that you wanted to study the weather? 
I was actually really young, about four years old. Wow. And we were driving home in Michigan and there was just a bad storm. Turns out there was a tornado that went right near us. Oh. And so as a little kid, rather than being scared out of my mind, Something went wrong, and I loved it. <laughs> the twister so scrambled your brain. Exactly. <laughs> and so my parents just were like, okay, well, she likes that. Let's get her all the books we can about the weather. And I just kept learning about it and learning about it. And ever since then, I knew I love talking with people. I apparently have a very bubbly personality, as I've been told. <laughs> <laughs> I love the weather. So broadcast meteorology was just meant to be. And I threw in some tornado chasing and now I'm the person I am. Now, I've seen some of your social media videos. Uh, and it's, it's accurate to call you a storm chaser. Oh, absolutely. It's my yeah. favorite part of the job, except we haven't had any tornadoes this year. Yeah. In and I think people are okay with that, but I'm slowly shaking in the corner like, I need something, some <laughs> hail maybe, Oh no, oh, no. We've got a gust of wind. We've got an adrenaline junkie here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do you split your time then between uh, reporting the weather in the studio and then going out and chasing storms? Well, it's actually perfect because I'm the morning person, so I get to work around 2 in the morning, which oh, man. is kind of ridiculous. Oh, man. Uh, but I'm done with work around 10 a.m. And so I spend maybe a couple hours either napping, which never happens, or <laughs> looking up where I think the tornadoes and storms are going to be. And yeah. then I just head on out for the evening with a camera guy and maybe get two hours of sleep before doing it all over again oh, in the morning. That's, that's so crazy. I'm very lucky that I'm young. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that. I think a young person could do that. A lot of people live their uh, their college existence like that. And so uh, maybe that translates into, into what you're doing now. But still, just thinking about that. I used, to, uh, I used to be an actor, and we would have really early morning calls sometimes. And it was just like, oh, I really have to be there at like 5 a.m. I got to find that makeup person, make me look like I'm alive. And yeah, that's just crazy. <laughs> Oh, that poor makeup person covering up all the dark circles. Yeah, you're up early. Eyes. They're up really early. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> they don't even go to sleep. Yeah, right. Uh, and like you said, there was no tornadoes in your area uh, this year, but storm spotting and, and storm chasing are very critical in that area that you work in, being in Tornado Alley. Uh, what creates yeah. so many tornadoes in that area of the country? We're even probably the most unique area in the world for tornadoes. In fact, the U.S. has the most tornadoes out of any other country. Wow. And the reason why is purely because we have the Rocky Mountains yeah. and the Gulf of Mexico. Right. And the Gulf of Mexico kicks up that warm, moist air. And then the Rockies have that cool, dry air. And, of course, you get the two to combine. They don't like to play nice together. And you <laughs> end up getting spin-ups and tornadoes. Yeah, yeah. Which, of course, can cause uh, a lot of damage. Oh, Yeah. Tornadoes, I've seen everything from a little spin-up that lasted a few seconds to an EF4 that we accidentally chased. Uh, <laughs> accidentally? <laughs> you get so many fun surprises when you're chasing storms, like thinking that the storm's dead, and then, oh, look at that. It's warning. It's a warning, and uh, it's going towards Lawrence, Kansas. We should probably move away. Oh, no. <laughs> I grew up in the Twin Cities area, and we don't get too many tornadoes up here. Um, I remember when I was a kid, there was a really big one and it, you know, touched down and, and uh, did some damage. I'm not sure there are any deaths. And the big deal was that the news helicopter was like trying to check it out and got really close and it was, they had all this footage, but that's all I really remember. But I know in other parts of the country, um, the situation's a lot different. 
Yeah, it all depends on what kind of resources you have for our station. Boots on the ground, probably the closest we can get, although I want a helicopter so bad. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we just we grab one of our news cars, make sure we say we'll return it in one piece with a little asterisk next to that. Sure. And uh, <laughs> we just head on out and go. And some of these spots, we can go probably an hour and only drive through a few towns. It's so rural, but yeah, yeah. the one person, if you can help them out by chasing a tornado and telling them exactly where it is, totally worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope you get a helicopter someday. I, I think you're in a <laughs> slightly smaller market there in Sioux City, right? Yeah, slightly smaller. Although, you know, now that I think about it, the hospital has a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> Call the hospital. Exactly. Like, hey, guys, you want to head on out, she storms. Uh, they'd probably hang up the phone and call me crazy. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's worth a shot. Uh, I know that you're tracking Hurricane Delta currently, and it's called Delta because we've already spent all 26 letters of the alphabet so far in 2020. And when we have a named hurricane of sufficient strength or destructive power, they, they retire that name, right? Like they'll, they'll never oh, be yeah. another hurricane named Katrina. Would they retire a Greek letter if, God forbid, a Greek named storm mm -hmm. was sufficiently destructive? Well, it's really interesting because with the Greek alphabet, unlike with the normal name list, you only have one name for the D, and that's Delta, yeah, as opposed yeah. to like Dylan or Danielle or stuff like that. So to retire it, it's more of a uh, a show than an actual retirement because they just put Delta, say, 2020. Okay, and okay. And the year behind it. So it will show up as retired, but only in that year. So you can technically still reuse it, but to be honest, it's so rare that we even get to the Greek alphabet. Yeah. We uh, hopefully won't have to be doing this much more. <laughs> hopefully not, yeah. I mean, it's it's been worrying. I mean, we've seen a lot of tropical storms and hurricanes in this year and in recent decades. Yeah. And in the last few years, we've seen a parade of extreme weather events from tornadoes and derechos and record high temps and the resulting fires. It's It's getting pretty wild out there. I mean, are we seeing the effects of continued climate change on the weather? It's really, it's quite interesting. I have a bunch of friends who are meteorologists, but they took a different path in life. So they're mm -hmm. doing research mm. and their job is purely to collect data from a span of about 30 years. That's when it officially becomes a climate yeah. data mm -hmm. is that data span. And you can see where we're getting some interesting differences. Yeah. <laughs> we'll put it that way of where the hurricanes are landing, how strong they are when they land. But this year... I mean, I've, I very rarely see such active weather. The last time we had to go into the Greek alphabet this far was in 2005. So mm. it's been a little bit of time, but to be honest, the past few years, it's been, it's been rough, yeah. especially with the flooding. These storms, they just seem to stall out and that causes so much rain and so many other problems. Oh, sure. Yeah. I, I don't know how long you've been a meteorologist, but you're living in a time of increased weather. How does how does that affected the job of meteorologist? How's the job changed in the last few decades? It's changed actually quite a bit. With meteorology, we really only started with tornado forecasting and really getting close on how we're monitoring storms with radar right around World War II. So mm, it's okay. still a new-ish science, and we're still trying to find all these things. And with the increase in severe weather, it's actually helped some scientists to gather information to figure out how we can better forecast and help things sure. and help people. So it's kind of a 
the opposite side of a coin, really, because you have these horrible storms that do so much devastation, but then you get the research that could help lives in the future. That's true. So yeah. even with these terrible storms, there's a silver lining of, okay, at least we're going to be able to help out in the future. We're getting the data, yeah. Exactly. That's, that's probably one of the biggest parts of meteorology at the moment is collecting that data. I'm guessing that the big development after World War II is radar. Um, how, yeah. did, how did people do their jobs as meteorologists before before radar? It was all just air pressure and almanacs? Exactly. It's a lot of those old tried and true technologies. You have yeah. thermometers, <laughs> you have barometers, and you would really have to rely on people, say, upstream is how we say it from you. The weather that happens, say, to your west here oh, in the sure. U.S. Yeah. And if they say, oh, hey, we just got 130 mile an hour wind and it was a big storm, it's probably going to hold itself together. Then they would tell that to someone either via phone nowadays or video <laughs> and they'd be right. like, you guys probably should keep an eye out for that. Yes. And it's all a game of telephone. And of course, with that, you get some pretty big differences and discrepancies. So I'm really glad we have radar so we can check our own information. <laughs> yeah. It would be so much better, or so much worse if we didn't. Give this to the Pony Express guy and give him a slicker. He's going to need it. Exactly. You better run. (laughs) Well, you don't just study and report the weather for the Siouxland area. Uh, With phantom forecasts, your beat extends to many worlds, including (laughs) ones that we frequently see on Star Trek. How did you get started doing phantom forecasts? Yeah, I actually was just new at my job. I've been a meteorologist here in Siouxland and just actually a broadcast meteorologist after college for about a year now. Mm-hmm. And it started out, I was just sitting at the job a couple months in. I thought, you know, maybe I could do something fun for some of these different fandoms I'm a part of. Because, you know, with my sleep schedule the way it is, you have a lot of time to watch shows <laughs> and no other social life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna try this. And I started with getting costumes. And so I got the Starfleet blue uniform, just you know, little little Easter eggs like, oh, I'm a scientist, this'll work. Right. And I thought, no one's gonna watch this. This is just gonna be for kicks and giggles. And even despite that, I put in some pretty decent time looking up like canonically, okay, do they use KPH? Do they use Celsius? <laughs> yeah. uh, Kelvin, all that stuff. I just put it all together and I posted it. And next thing I know, everyone likes it. (laughs) Yeah. So I always pull it back to um, a great quote from the creator of Charlotte's Web. I it's he said, I wrote this book for children and to amuse myself. Well, I make my phantom forecast for people and mostly to amuse myself. I like that. Yeah. It's such a fun idea, and I love the attention to detail. All of your wiki trolling is is paying off. Like I like <laughs> the fact when you're w- reporting weather conditions for Star Trek worlds, you're doing it in SI units, which of course they use in the future. Oh yes, if we finally have uniform units, that would be that's really what would that be like? There. Yeah, I can't even imagine. <laughs> so great because then you could exchange weather information without having to do the exchange of units and the calculations, and you wouldn't have to learn how to calculate it in school because that was the bane of my existence. Right, uh, <laughs> right, yeah. And people, hear it, people hear it's in the high 20s on Ryza, though. They don't want to go because they don't understand that that's nice. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Ugh, Celsius. Why can't we just use you? Yeah. Well, as a cosplayer, I'm sure that you get out to a bunch of conventions. Oh, I do. I they, We actually, the last convention I went to was C2V2 in Chicago, mm-hmm. and that was at the end of February. As I was flying back to Siouxland, they had their first case of COVID. Yeah. And, oh, 
we that was a miracle that we got through with that without any major incident. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ever since then, I've just been going to virtual conventions, and they seem like they've been pretty fun. But you miss that cosplay element and the meeting the people element. Yeah, it's not quite the same with your Star Trek background on your Zoom call or whatever it is. <laughs> it's not quite the same feeling. Exactly, so you can have like the Cerritos background, but yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> but you're not animated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just really, it's sad and it's sad to see everybody so depressed in this sort of conless year. Um, and of course they're going to come back, you know, better than ever, but there has been a lot of virtual events and virtual conventions and I've, you know, especially just in the Star Trek world, I've, I've been watching some and been, been a part of some and they generally work so well that I'd have to imagine that that aspect of fandom is probably going to stick around in the future. I wouldn't be surprised because it makes it so accessible to everyone. Yeah. You get people who have, say, a broken leg or a broken foot, and they think, I cannot oh, yeah. get around with the wheelchair. And so you can just sit at home and be a part of it. And I'd love to see a hybrid of virtual convention with in-person convention. Yeah. You could totally make that happen for the people who can't travel. Yeah. It would be so great for everyone involved. Yeah. And so many of the people, uh, like the Star Trek, uh, in particular stars and crew, um, just love doing the cons and they've, they've just really come out to support these virtual events, uh, as well from virtual Trek con down to the uh, Trek, the vote initiative that they've got going on right now. So I'd have to imagine that they would want to also continue to reach out to the fans and oh, get yeah. a chance to interact with them. Well, it was great because Kate Mulgrew did this thing called cocktails with Kate. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually was in a, she, she picked me for that. Oh, that's cool. That probably the highlight of my year because I just, you know, I, I, I don't drink based on my life schedule. Drinking at 10 a.m. is kind of, yeah. <laughs> so I grabbed some sparkling grape juice. I was like, hello, Captain. And we just talked for an hour. Wow. I met a person who drives a Mars Rover in our group. It was just so cool. I'm so glad that they're embracing this. Yeah. If it's even if it's through cameo or something, they're getting in contact with fans and making fans feel important, which is huge, especially in Star Trek. Yeah, and it's another thing that again can come out of something a horrible situation like this. Um, I'm not sure. We definitely probably would have moved to this eventually, but the fact that we can't go anywhere has caused people to sort of jumpstart this in initiative, and I hope it sticks around. Same here. Yeah. Well, why did you choose this specific episode, Let He Who Is Without Sin, to discuss today? Mainly because I like to refer to it as Let He Who Is Without Sun. It's really punny <laughs> and it's totally weather related. Uh, oh, that's right up my alley. That's <laughs> great. My tomato alley. Ah, oh, no. I'm <laughs> no, gosh. <laughs> but I love any sort of sci-fi that deals with the weather. Yeah. Because it's something that no matter what planet you go on, it's going to be there. Yeah. And this particular aspect of it, being able to control it and then use it for nefarious purposes <laughs> actually made me stop and think like people want to control the weather that feasibly could happen. We could have people try and take over the weather and maybe cause natural disasters and it would just be horrifying. And I never thought of that ever. It was just such a really thought provoking episode for me. And yeah. Yeah, it you know, it is a fun episode and I'm excited to get a chance to talk about it, not just because I'm talking with a meteorologist about it, although that is a plus. <laughs> um, it's an interesting episode to me for several reasons. And one of them is that it's a show that's that's trying to give us a look at a social aspect 
of the Federation. In this yeah. case, um, you know, leisure time, uh, pleasure planets in the Federation, and how people conduct relationships in the 24th century. And we've actually talked previously um, on the podcast uh, about the idea of um, like sex work in the future and how it might be deregulated and conducted positively in, in Federation society. But, you know, any franchise that's as old as Star Trek is, it's going to have its roots in a different time. That is an era where, let's face it, you know, the episodes are written by men who aren't yeah. necessarily concerned with sexual equality. And a pleasure planet in those stories ends up being a place where they go to Aruga over belly dancers, you know. And, mm -hmm. and I've, stated, I've stated on the show before that I think that that DNA has kind of persisted a little bit in the franchise, you know, really up to the, to the modern era of discovery. Um, you know, we don't know exactly what goes on on Riza, but we know that everybody's, you know, hooting over how great it is. And they're, you know, straining their eyes, winking at each other over it. And <laughs> and I don't think that it's that that aspect is totally absent from this episode, but it's it's at least it's pushed off onto our sexist character, you know, the character of Quark. Mm -hmm. He's the guy that's just doing all the whoop, whoop, whoop. And with the <laughs> rest. Yeah, exactly. You know, get to one in each hand. Yeah. But for the. <laughs> For the rest of the adults, you know, we get to see them being fairly mature about sex and relationships, and Worf being immature about those topics, it makes him kind of the bad guy in this situation. And I think that feels like progress to me, however incremental. Yeah, you really, I hadn't thought of that. You see the entire spectrum of how people can handle things like sex in the 24th century. Yeah. In TOS, it would just be Kirk and Scotty on a planet, and they're like, "We need some R and R," and they're, uh, you know, there's belly dancers or something like that. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I love it actually because then you you go from Quark, who's all, "Let's do this. This is totally normal," to Worf, who's like, "What are you doing not do on this, this planet?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then we get to see the um, the extreme sort of views of the essentialists as well, which is like Worf. Don't don't read that pamphlet. Put that pamphlet down. Don't take pamphlets on the street. You're, Come on, Worf. <laughs> you're on vacation. You know don't you know yeah. you don't take pamphlets from strangers? Right. Yeah, you don't want that. <laughs> it's like the uh, people um, – I've only been to L.A. once, but uh, in the airport, you know, there's a lot of people that will – I don't know if they still do this because uh, this is a while ago, but you get a lot of pamphlets and stuff from people. Yeah. And they're not necessarily people who, you know, believe in these faiths or are part of whatever these churches are. They're often just people that are hired to do it. But you get the pamphlet and it's like, okay, well, you know, that's, I'm here for a vacation. I'm probably not going to think about this right now. And I just imagine that if there's a shuttle port at Riza, maybe there's like a whole line of these people who are just <laughs> giving you stuff or giving you little bags of stuff as you come off. Oh, that is totally reminding me of the movie Airplane. Oh, yeah. If you've seen that, with the Hare yeah. Krishna guys, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. You're just trying to make it to the pleasure planet. Get out of my way. Yeah, yeah. It's Robert Stack is just karate kicking people. Yeah. <laughs> you just get the double handed fist punch. <laughs> yeah, he's doing a little Star Trek fighting. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> well, I want to talk more about the weather, but let's save that for a little later in the show. And I'll just say that we we are talking the DS9 episode. Let he who is without sin dot 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 the seventh episode of the fifth season of ds9 it first aired on november 11th of 1996 it was written by ira stephen bear and robert hewitt wolf who we've talked about on this show many times before but suffice it to say that they were two of the major architects of the series long arc of deep space nine wolf also served as a producer on the series and bear served as executive producer and showrunner during the series run bear also wrote the tng episode captain's holiday which introduced the concept of Riza to the franchise. 
This episode was directed by the late, great René Abergenois. And as I was putting my notes together, I realized I don't think that we've really had a chance to talk about René on the show since his passing uh, late last year. So I wanted to take a moment to pay tribute to him and talk a little bit about his life. Uh, He was born in New York City, uh, but he also lived in Paris and London as a child. His father was a writer, and his mother was descended from French royalty, and the family lived for a time in an artist colony in upstate New York, along with actors like Burgess Meredith and Lottie Lenya and her husband, Kurt Vile. After college, he acted in L.A. and New York, and he helped found several theaters that are still excellent to this day. He won a Tony Award in 1970 for his performance in Coco, the musical, opposite Catherine Hepburn. He would go on to receive three more Tony nominations during his career, and he would appear again many times on Broadway and on stage, as well as directing many theatrical productions. His, he played Father Mulcahy in the original film version of MASH in 1970, and he would go on to countless film and TV roles. Actually, countless isn't scientifically accurate. We can count them. He has 228 listed credits Whoa. on his IMDb. Yeah, and that doesn't count you know, individual episodes of a show. So he has so many entries. Uh, in addition to his role as Odo, he played Clayton Endicott III on six seasons of Benson and senior partner Paul Lewiston for five seasons of Boston Legal. And he was an incredibly prolific voice actor and voiceover artist as well. Uh, he appeared in the films The Last Unicorn, The Little Mermaid, and Cats Don't Dance, as well as the animated series The Smurfs, Super Friends, DuckTales, Justice League, and Avengers Assemble, and many more. He lent his voice to the DS9 video games, in addition to the Legacy of Kane video game series, Fallout New Vegas, God of War, and Uncharted 3, and many, many audiobooks. And he directed eight episodes of DS9. I can't, I did not know he did so much. Yeah. By all wow. accounts, he was a friendly, amazing guy. Every... Every you know interview or video that you see him in, he's got kind of he's got a goofy side too, and it just seems like that he would be just so so good to work with, so good to know. Yeah, it's so much fun too to see the behind the scenes because you know he's Odo in the show. And yeah, he's kind of very stiff and it's uh, a real contrast, <laughs> yeah, to who he was in real life. Yeah, that just goes to show how good an actor he was. Yeah, he he his um, Benson character was like that too. I I haven't seen Boston Public, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was as well. Uh, in Star Trek Six, he played the I think that scene was actually cut from the theatrical version, but he plays a very stuffy military commander. So it's funny that he had all this comedic talent to play these kind of uh, officious buffoons, you know, but in real life, he was the complete opposite of that. Oh, wow. See, he's someone I would have loved to have met at a convention. Yeah, me too. Me too. So he will be and is currently being missed. Uh, The star date for this episode is unknown, which is not uncommon for DS9 episodes. uh, But we do know that it it is in the calendar year 2373. And your assignment, Katie, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of Let He Who Is Without Sin. All right, let's count out these words. (laughs) Okay, all right. Let's see. Bashir, Lita, Quark, Dax, and Worf all head to Ryza And everything goes wrong, whether it's with the relationship or with the weather. I don't know if it was 25, but it sounded good to me. I'll call it good enough. Yeah, we'll call it good enough. Yeah. (laughs) The end, or fin, if you need to fill it out a little bit at the end. (laughs) 
There are some interesting facts from our memory banks about this episode. Uh, first of all, the title of the episode is, of course, A Biblical Illusion from John chapter 8. Uh, in the King James, it's verbatim, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Jesus is speaking to the scribes and Pharisees about the woman accused of adultery that they bring before him. And the message is generally accepted from a modern perspective as, be careful in judging people when you you know you've got your own issues to deal with, and I think we see that play out nicely with both Worf and the essentialists in the episode who have way more issues than trying to clean up Riza for its, oh, uh, its yeah. sex and and its uh, whatever. Uh, according to Ira Stephen Bear, the story for the episode came out of a discussion about the Eugene O'Neill play A Moon for the Misbegotten. Uh, the theme of the play, like a lot of Neil's work, is the destructive nature of excessive alcohol and sex. And Bear wanted an episode uh, that would, uh, quote, rattle the audience and would show sexuality and push the envelope about Riza, which um, I don't know if this episode accomplishes, but we'll talk a little bit more uh, about whether he felt like it did. There were more than a few issues during the filming of the episode. Of course, it was filmed on location in Malibu. Terry Farrell has an issue, apparently, where she can't be in direct sunlight for extended periods. Uh, I get it. Uh, she's oh, very no. fair. I am as well. Uh, the idea was that they would have a shelter up so she and the cast could go in there in between takes. But in getting ready for the episode, the producers forgot to provide the shelter. And it came, oh, no. it came, this tells us something else about Renee. It came down to Renee himself having to go off and find a tent that they could use and bring it back, which means that they lost hours and got behind schedule. Also, the beach location where they filmed the Essentialist rally ended up being covered in sandburrs. So that meant that the oh. cast, the cast, they had to be careful with setups and the cast found it hard to stand still uh, on their marks uh, because of these painful burrs. Oh, no. So they got even more delays there. Yeah. They also had to reshoot the scene where Worf and Dax discover Lita receiving a massage from a Rysian hunk because initially she was uh, in a bathtub nude, TV nude. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but the uh, but the network said, no, nah, that's, uh, that's too sexy for Star Trek. So they had to go back and shoot the whole scene again. It's like, do you even know what planet we're on? This is the <laughs> sex planet, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> There's a million bathtubs with a million hunks. Uh, <laughs> and like a rainy vacation on Ryza, the crew and cast weren't having much fun on the set. Because of those issues, uh, Renee was quoted as saying, it was not my happiest time as a director. Uh, Alexander Siddig and Nana Visitor's son Django was born during the production of the episode. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, Siddig said that he was very understandably unfocused on set and he wasn't really happy with his performance. And Terry Farrell said that the hours were extremely long on location. She talked about having a 20-hour day right after a 17-hour day, which came after a 15-hour day. Oh. She was told that she had an early call for the first scene on that 20-hour day. So now we're in your area. She's getting up at 2 a.m. probably to go into work. Yeah. And she started crying, understandably. Oh, yeah. And a, oh. a crew member ran off to get her some tissues, but he couldn't find any on set. All he could find on the beach set was a towel. So he brought her a towel, uh, which did make her laugh. So uh, <laughs> things turned out okay, but not a lot of fun was had, it seems. And here are some reactions from the cast and crew to the episode. There are some bad feelings here. The sky's going to darken a little bit, but we're going to pull through with sunny skies at the end, I promise. Robert Hewitt Wolf said that this was his least favorite episode that he wrote or co-wrote. I Stephen Bear said that if he could go back and do any episode again that he'd ever done, it would be this one, saying that, quote, it was supposed to be a show that looked at the 24th century morals and sexuality. 
we pretty much failed on both those counts, end quote. And according to Wolf and Bayer, the restrictions that they received about depicting sex and sexuality were the major stumbling block to making the show work. Bayer said that because it was an episode about sex and strong feelings about sex, not being able to really go into that space made their Riza as seen bland and tame. And I don't know. I think having watched Star Trek and TV for a long time, I think if TV writers get a centimeter, they'll take a kilometer, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. See the attempts to sex up Enterprise, right? But Oh, uh, my gosh, the decontamination. Yes, yes. But who knows? Maybe a little bit more would have helped. I'm not sure. (laughs) Wolf did suggest at the time that they just can the episode and just get rid of it. But both he and Bear... I think it's a testament to how much they liked this idea of a story that they really wanted to make it work. So they continued to try and do so. And a series writer and producer, Ronald D. Moore, also had said, quote, it's a show we all wish we had a second crack at. Really? Yeah. And I think fan reception to the episode was also mixed to negative. Now, I'll, um, I'll start this off by saying I really enjoy this episode. I see its flaws. But like I said, you know, in the beginning of the episode, it's it's going places that we don't get to see. We've seen the Enterprise fight a million birds of prey. We've seen them meet a million weird aliens. You know, I like yeah. seeing the social aspects of the Federation. But Screen Rant did an article in 2019 titled Star Trek, the 10 worst episodes of DS9 ever, according to their IMDb oh. ratings. This episode was, I think, around number three on their list of 10 at a 5.6 rating. And Screen what? Rant... In the article, criticized Worf's controlling behavior and uh, him joining the essentialists, you know, saying that it was out of character for him. Okay, I'll give him that. (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah. Um, So I hope I'm not breaking your heart here. (laughs) But uh, I I didn't know it had such a negative. uh... I didn't know either. I didn't know either. I remember seeing it for the first time and thinking, that kind of worked. Yeah, I, I can see maybe that's not everybody's cup of tea, but I thought it was fine. But yeah, when I started researching this, I was like, whoa, people really did not like this episode. Yeah, I mean, it's no code of honor. It's no, like, no, no. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's certainly no code of honor, which I have no idea what the IMTB rating is for that one, but I kind of like to know. Can it go into the negatives? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I wonder. <laughs> or just stay at a flat zero. Yeah. <laughs> You're uh, not even allowed to vote. It's just zero. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> vote rejected. Yeah. Well, here's a wacky fact to bring things back up. Uh, I thought it was hilarious that if you look closely at Dax's swimsuit uh, in the outdoor scenes, you can see that she has the Speedo logo of the manufacturer of the swimsuit on her right hip on the swimsuit. No way. Which seems like a production mistake, but who knows? Speedo might still be making swimwear in the 24th century. We don't know. I really want that to be canon. <laughs> yeah. After the Federation economy, you know, changes and, and people just do things for free, uh, Speedo is still committed to swimwear excellence in the 24th century. We will bring you all of the holographic all and of the looking <laughs> rainbow. All the swimsuits. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the sh- shimmering iridescent swimsuits. No problem. <laughs> exactly. Uh, let's talk about the guest stars in this episode quick. Of course, uh, Chase Masterson appears as Lita. And Masterson played Lita during the last five seasons of DS9. She was originally conceived as a one-off character, but like many of DS9's side characters, the producers were so impressed with her performance that they kept bringing her back until she was a regular. She's also, and I didn't know this, she's also a a voice actress and has appeared in several Big Finish Doctor Who radio dramas. No way! I'm a huge Whovian. How did I not know this? Oh, are you a fan? Oh, I'm a massive fan. I actually, I 
accidentally won a Star Trek dating competition with her uh, at my first ever Star Trek convention. <laughs> it was not on purpose. I mean, it was the first day, and I'd never been to a convention. We walked into the main hall, and they said, we need volunteers. So me, being the child that like, I was, yes. <laughs> sophomore in college is so t- such a child, yeah. I raised my hand. What could possibly go wrong? Turns out you were supposed to try and win a date with her. And I, I, I'm a straight woman, but I, you know, I was like, I, I don't know how to do cool about this. Uh, I said, you know what? Let's let's take this as I want. I'm looking for a wing woman. It was sure. you know the blind date game, so you're like trying to pitch yourself. I'm like, sure. You know, maybe we could go down to Bajor, find a couple Doctor Bashirs, you know, hang out. <laughs> yeah, sure. She picked me over seven other guys. <laughs> That's great. I, lost my mind and when i went up on stage afterwards she'd like to get a picture with her she just whispers in my ear so no one else could hear it she goes let's go find us a couple of bashirs like, <laughs> it just made my life that's great is was there like a like a equivalent like a, win a date with casey biggs or something like that Oh, no, no, it was just her. And <laughs> so sadly, you know, it's not, it's not like you actually got to go and do anything. You just got the cool picture. But yeah, like, oh, yeah, yeah. How cool would it have been, you know, like you know, Jeffrey Combs or something like that? Sure, yeah, I would, yeah. I, I want to pick your brain for a night. Let's do this. It's, I mean, it's sort of like eye rolly that, you know, you're going to win a date with Lita. But it's also weirdly progressive that they that they let you compete, though. Yeah, I mean, they, they just saw my hand from the back of the room. And I think they just figured, yeah, come on, let's all, right. let's all be inclusive. They're down. <laughs> he actually said, you know, uh, come on, we want everyone to be involved in this. Anyone from any walk of life. And I'm right. like, what does anyone. That mean? Sure. Yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna find out what that means. You can probably see it on my face as the gears were turning. Like, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. This just goes to prove get to the convention early so yeah. you don't miss out on the introduction. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> God, that's so funny. That was such a uh, side tangent. Sorry about that. No, no, that's perfect. It's right on topic. Uh, Monty Markham appears as the bad guy in this episode. Pascal Fullerton, great, great. It sounds like a college dean, you know, in a in a in a college comedy. Uh, Markham has made many TV appearances in TV guest roles uh, since his TV debut on the original Mission Impossible series. He had recurring roles on the TV series Dallas, as well as Baywatch and the Six Million Dollar Man series, on which he played the Seven Million Dollar Man. Ooh. Yeah. Sounds like they were needing some story stretching right there. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He's also a prolific voiceover artist as well. And this episode features a special appearance by Vanessa Williams as Arandis. Williams is known as a singer, actress, and fashion designer. She was crowned Miss America in 1983 and went on to a successful singing career, reaching number one on the Billboard charts with her 1992 hit, Save the Best for Last. She first appeared on TV in a 1984 episode of The Love Boat, and she went on to appear in the film Eraser and the 2000 remake of Shaft, as well as the TV series Ugly Betty and the Librarians. And I was surprised to find out that they had actually cast a different actress for the role. I think when they were writing the script, they wanted Vanessa Williams or somebody like her, and they ended up casting a South African actress named Suzanne Braun. And they were getting up to like the costume fitting, basically, like they were getting ready to pull the trigger. And then Vanessa Williams like, oh, do, do you guys want me to be in the show? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. And so then get in here. <laughs> she's Vanessa Williams. So she got the job. Uh, but the other actress, uh, they just probably just paid her and she went away. Yeah, I got the money. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. You don't pass up on Vanessa Williams. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, I think her character worked perfectly. Like the casting worked really well. It really did. 
We still haven't. Have you seen all the Riza episodes like the Enterprise one? And, and uh, I have. I've seen every episode of Star Trek ever made at least twice. Oh, my goodness. I'm <laughs> I have no life. I'm getting there. I'm going to I'm going to lap you someday. Um, yeah. <laughs> is she. Yeah, it's we don't ever really. I don't feel like we we put a Riza, a R- R- Rizian Ryzen in a room and go, all right, why are you people so nice? Why, why do you do this? <laughs> you're, not, you're not getting paid. Why do you let everybody come to your planet and walk around and, and drink the Icaberry juice, you know, and have sex with you guys? And then you even let them like yell at you on a beach because you're like, that's what makes them happy. Like, why are you like that? Is it the things on your forehead? Why? Why do you do this? Yeah. Oh, I would actually love to dive into rising like psychology and yeah. go into their religion if they have one and all that. Oh, that would be a Maybe Discovery, you know, in the future, you know. Yeah. Ryza, it'll probably be dystopian, but you know. That, well, <laughs> but we'll see. <laughs> Why are there all these lens flares on this sunny planet? Yeah. But uh, who knows? I think that Discovery could do a pretty good take on it. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the casting is great because she's so... Um, She's so even tempered and, and, you know, and she's so beautiful and she's so um, sort of like accepting of everything. They're all just so perfect. Like, why are they like that? Yes. Oh, yeah, totally. Like, even the managers are just like top notch all the way. <laughs> like when you, you want to see a manager and they're like, oh, let me let me take care of your problem. Yes. Here. How can I help you? Even Karen's <laughs> are happy on Rise Up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even the Karen's are happy on Rise Up. Karen gives it five stars. <laughs> That's when you know it's a good planet. <laughs> Let's uh, let's do it. Let's talk about the weather. Uh, it's almost counterproductive to talk about the weather in movies and TV because it's always <laughs> nice weather. You know, they're filmed in beautiful Southern California. You want good lighting and dry actors to make a TV show. But I find it fascinating that, you know, at least once, at least on this episode, the Star Trek franchise found a way to feature the weather and specifically future technology that regulates the weather in an episode. And it figures that that episode would be set on Ryza, which is like the Malibu of the galaxy. Oh yeah. I, the, when I saw the episode for the first time, I was, I remember being so glad that they were actually introducing bad weather. <laughs> yeah. It's like anytime there's a landing party. Oh look, it's dry. Hey, it's sunny. Oh no, there's a cloud. Like it's just so fair weather. Right. And to be able to actually talk about how they handle the weather on advanced planets was something I'm so glad they talked about. Yeah, when they go on location, they're visiting a lot of desert planets, a lot of gulches, and Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, a lot of arid areas. But yeah, I like the fact that they did that. And it bums everybody out. Like, I guess if you don't have a lot of problems in the sort of paradise of the Federation, maybe a little rain for a couple of days would be like, oh man, I'm really depressed. I can't play hoverball. I can't do anything. Exactly. All the outdoor stuff that you would normally do just instantly taken away with like, and to think that is so weird to have rain on Ryza. It's so nice. That would kind of put a damper on things. You're like, oh, come on. Really? When I'm on vacation, of course, it has to break. Right. I want to refund. Oh, I didn't pay for anything, but still, I'm mad. (laughs) I got sandbirds to step on out there. Um, The Federation has fixed poverty and hunger, and they seem to have very little internal political conflict. And they get along with other societies mostly. You know, you can have whatever, you can have a million ice cream sundaes if you want. So it follows that they would have mastered inclement weather as well, I suppose. But how? How do they do that? Like, what is a weather grid? That is like a million dollar question for me. (laughs) Yeah. I. The way I'm thinking about it is probably they're controlling the amount of sunlight that gets in because that's how we could 
feasibly control the weather here on Earth. The sunlight causes some spots to get warmer than others and some spots to be cooler. And that warm and cold, of course, you get fronts and then you get storms. If you could regulate the heat, you wouldn't have the sort of intense weather that we have right now. So as a weather grid, I'm imagining maybe around the poles, they're letting in a little bit more light to heat things up or something. I've spent too much time thinking about this. As I can tell. Basically, that's all the, the point is. I have spent too much time. So you say you put some kind of either energy or physical, like polarized, you know, shield around, if not the entire planet, the resort areas or whatever. You yeah. could lessen the heat coming in, like the infrared radiation. What would that do to the the climate on the rest of the planet it would probably have to make the planet you'd be forcing the planet to stay neutral really is what uh. it would be so pretty much everywhere you go the temperature would be the same and therefore the weather would be the same it's only when you get changes that you get bad weather otherwise it's just going to be sunny so it, i have okay, a feeling okay they're just like making sure everything's even across the planet. If one spot's a little cool, they turn on the hairdryer, you know, like warm <laughs> sure, it up just okay. a little bit. Sure, sure. That's interesting because, you know, we're told in the episode that Risa was initially a humid jungle world and that the weather control technology lessens the rains. And it, I guess that gives us the paradise we see. And I, I think it's suspect that there might be a parallel there to Los Angeles, which is nominally an arid desert-like area that's been made green through aqueducts and irrigation. But would a whole planet work like that? Can you just take the rain away and then I suppose the, the heat, as you mentioned, from a rainy jungle biome and it would, it would still stay lush but be more temperate? Yeah, you'd have to figure out where you want the rain to fall. I noticed in some of the background imagery when they were doing the far establishing shots that uh, someone had put in a waterfall off of a large cliff. Mm -hmm. and it shows up a couple of times, and that makes me think, you know, maybe they just put the rain off in another area on the planet, mm -hmm. and that probably they have some sort of aquifer channeling areas to keep it all nice and lush without having it rain, That's which true, is also yeah. a very interesting way to manipulate the weather. That I mean, that would be like L.A. then, because it would be, oh, it's sort of hot and it's kind of a dry heat, but everything is green because they're just running water you know, underground through everything. So maybe like exactly. below the soil on Risa, it's just a mess of tubes and pipes, you know, just bringing water everywhere. Exactly. And I, you know what, Discovery, they should talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. little that. detail. Yeah. <laughs> Have Tilly get just obsessed with that or something. Oh, that would be so perfect. <laughs> A lot of sci-fi settings feature one biome planets, you know, planets where everything is ice or desert or salt. Yeah. Uh, is a one biome planet feasible? I mean, in, in a habitable range. A lot of worlds in our system uh, the, the, that we live in are ice, but, you know, we can't live mm -hmm. there. In a habitable range, I, I honestly, I don't think it would be possible because you would either yeah. have to have it be so cold that yeah. it's just nothing can happen or so hot that everything's boiling. Otherwise, you just end up with Earth and you get these different kinds of storms. And over time, it's just going to get more and more to the extreme. So you're going to get more and more extreme weather. Do we have today real world methods of altering the weather? I mean, I know that they can seed clouds and, and things like that, but I have to admit, I don't really know <laughs> anything about like weather generation. Like what can we do in this era? Yeah. Well, we're still experimenting with cloud seeding. Like, like we mentioned way back when, when we started the podcast, the, with meteorology, it's still relatively new and growing science. It's really exploded. And so hopefully we'll be able to learn how to at least influence the weather on severe weather side, maybe learn how to dissipate tornadoes or dissipate hurricanes. But these storms have the power of 
hundreds of atomic bombs. That's mm-hmm. like trying to figure out how to contain that. So I have a feeling, at least here in the present, we wouldn't be able to contain the weather, maybe just nudge it slightly. <laughs> just nudge it in a certain direction. We can always hope. Yeah, you know, we have, there's some meteorologists and that's all that they want to learn how to do. And, you know, maybe they'll have a breakthrough and we won't have to worry too much in the future about hmm. massive hurricanes. I've got a golf weekend this week, so just push it, just push the rain back a little exactly. bit. Yeah. See, my hope is that we can have individual weather grids over our houses because I want to decorate for the holidays with the weather. (laughs) How cool would that be? Just one day you have a tornado just spinning in your front yard. You can maybe have a bungee cord, let the kids fly around in it. I I wouldn't be a responsible parent. Uh, (laughs) Anytime I think about weather control is just, what could I decorate with? (laughs) I made my house look like a gothic castle for Halloween, so I'm going to need a little thunderstorm over it just for atmosphere, weak lightning Maybe bolts. Yeah. Yeah. The purple lightning from the Sub Rosa episode. <laughs> yeah, oh man, we, we could talk about that. Uh, well, something I've always liked about Star Trek is that in relation to the weather, Starfleet is based on ancient naval tradition. You know, they're all sailors of a sort, and sailors have an intimate and vital connection to the weather for good reason. And even Starfleet officers are always looking for that that smooth sailing on a calm sea, or in their case, space. And they're sometimes tossed in their ships by the cosmic winds and waves. And often the things that they find out in the galaxy, you know, they, they understand or conceptualize through things like weather phenomena. Oh, yeah. There's so much to do with space weather. We have just barely nicked the surface of that. I have a feeling once we go to Mars, you're going to see them say, we, we do need to bring a meteorologist along because Mars has weather. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Meteorology, I mean, no matter what planet you go to, unless it's just that purely one biome with the frozen or burning alive. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Have some variation you might want to know about. You're going to want to watch the lava, lava patterns today on your way to work. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> might have that solar wind just push you off course. Because, you know, they're tracking phenomenon. They're reporting the condition of space lanes, you know, in regions and charting and analyzing new anomalies, chasing cosmic yeah. strings. Like space is the medium where everyone would work, just like commercial and military pilots work in the air and need to know all the information. Exactly. Like modern day meteorologists, we rely so much on airplanes Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. the weather kind of works from the top down, up way up where the jet stream is. And that's the only way we can get the information is from pilots. So I have a feeling in Star Trek, it would be the same thing where if a ship runs into a certain type of space weather, they'd report it back to headquarters and there would just be this not national weather service, but Federation Weather Service. Yeah, yeah. And that, you could check the the weather in space before you plot your course. That has to exist. It's just off screen. I want that to be con- canon. Yeah. It well, it's, it's head canon now. But yeah, I'd like to see that yeah. be real canon later. I talked before about Trek trying to tackle the subject of sex. And I've remarked before on this program that I feel like Trek has a kind of stunted view of sexuality. Um even as the show has matured in its storytelling, like you rarely see it, frankly, discuss sex and relationships outside of either the, you know, way that it tries to talk, they talk about what's going on on Riza, yeah. or the the sort of tortured romance, um, you know, the in the sort of soapy drama of its relationships. And there is exceptions, like especially on DS Nine, um, I think that Rejoined is a very painful and poignant yeah. look at not only a mature relationship but a same sex one. And Cisco and Cassidy are, are a great example of an adult couple who are 
they love each other, but it's not the passion of youth. You know, they're balancing their love and their responsibilities and their futures together. What do you think? How do you think that Trek handles sex and relationships? I think it varies wildly. You <laughs> like, the, like the weather. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's probably more volatile, to be honest. At least I can tell you what the weather's going to do by looking outside. You look at a person and you think, uh-huh. <laughs> there's, there's no predicting. <laughs> exactly. Well, unless it's Kirk. Kirk's pretty constant. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> when you start out with the original series, you do see like, okay, male-dominated society. You have the over-sexualized Orion females and all that. And then you start to get, you know, further along in Trek and you start to see representation for non-binary people or with the trill, you have transgender in, sure. so, in many locations and many yeah. ways. And I think that's one thing that Star Trek can do more is use sci-fi as an envelope to talk about these things. Because some yeah. people, many people in modern society are uncomfortable talking about it. It's, that's why we're still seeing struggles with television handling such mature topics. But if you put it in a sci-fi envelope, like, oh, no, they aren't transgender in a human sense. They switch bodies, and it's totally normal for it to switch. Or like what they're doing with the Orville. It's kind of a mini Star Trek. Sure, (laughs) sure. How they have the Mocklins, and they're a, well, quote-unquote, one-gender species. And it's just, it's things you can talk about in a sci-fi envelope that actually bring people to the table rather than drive them away. And... Yeah, I think that's definitely something Star Trek can do better with. The one type of relationship that I absolutely love, though, that Star Trek handled was Bolana and Tom on Voyager. Yeah. It was so realistic. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. You're just spending all your time they... on the holodeck. And it's just, it's so great because you see them from the whole, oh, I hate, I can't stand you too. Okay, what kind of flirty to let's date to let's get married to we have a child. Like, it's like yeah. such a good progression that actually had thought put into it. We have a lot of problems along the way too. They did a lot of bouncing off of each other and sort of coming together and being pushed apart. And yeah, yeah. Not all rosy. And I think that's what they tried to do with Dax and Worf in this episode, but it kind of just came off as, oh boy, okay, the man trying to suppress the woman. Yeah, you think Worf would be over this by now? Like, is this still something that... DS9 has always been a fairly sex-positive and mature show, I think, but I think the teenage boy in the writers comes out a little bit with the characterization of Worf and Dax's sexual relationship. I mean, I don't want to yuck anybody's yum, but like cracked ribs and concussions don't sound all that sexy. Like what is going on in there? Exactly. Like, okay, I get, you know, that's a lot of pain. I've had three concussions in my life. Oh my goodness. You don't, yeah, oh, yeah. None of them from Hailstones, surprisingly, yet. Uh, <laughs> no. It's probably going to happen. Uh, but, like, y- you don't, you aren't even feeling like yourself when you have a concussion. You just want to curl into a corner that's dark and not move. Right. So, what kind of Starfleet meds do they have them pumped up on <laughs> that they're still going? They should wear helmets. Yeah, exactly. There's some sort of safety protocol, like go into a padded room or something. Yeah, a padded room or invest in a lot of beanbags or something. Jeez, like. Yes! Oh, <laughs> you go into Wolf's bedroom and it's just beanbag chairs. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Wall to ceiling beanbag chairs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like a dorm room. Uh, or, or inflatable furniture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I can totally see it being like a dorm room. <laughs> He's got Scarface poster <laughs> on the wall. Yeah. 
it, it again occurs to me that Dax may have been uh, on the other side of this issue when she was Curzon. We know that Curzon uh, loved the Klingon culture and he never said no to a good time. So he was maybe getting like neck strains and concussions, you know, on the other side of a Klingon human relationship or Trill in this case. True. You know, death by Jamal Haron. So. That's true. That's true. I got a little too into it for his uh, little little frail body there. I love that. I love the fact that he has been a Curzon, uh, sort of a uh, kind of a spirit, you know, uh, in the uh, in the show. I mean, we meet him. Um, I don't remember which crew member he's in in that one episode where she meets her personalities, yeah. but uh, he's always kind of like hovered over our perception of the new Jadzia Dax and. He, having seen the uh, the scene, I think in the first episode where we see him pass away and they pass the Dax symbiote on to Jitsia, is like that's how I remember him. And then in season five, we learn, oh, he got John Marone to death. That's how he died. Yeah, <laughs> and Vanessa Williams did it. <laughs> it's just like he what? What? Back to the first episode, like, did he have that sly, knowing smile in the episode? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it totally recontextualizes. It. He's pretty happy when he's passing away. Now we know why. <laughs> It's the first episode of a brand new show, and you just walk up to an actor and say, "Listen, you died by sex. It's going to be an Easter egg come five seasons from now." Yeah. But just, just have that look in your eye. I hope they knew that. I think it's probably more like that. The two sat down to work on the thing, and they're like, "Hey, we've got, you know, we've got this woman here. We've got the former person who used to be Curzon. Like, let's just say that he died having Jamaharon. Let's just do that." Perfect. That's why they had that. <laughs> those strings together. That's why that Horgon was on his coffin. That was it was weird. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I wondered about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that. Something that I think is both silly and forward-looking in the Trek style um, is this uh, this Bajoran rite of breaking up. Uh, I can't remember what, what the name of the ritual is called, but it, it's very formalized. Uh, it'd probably be a little awkward, but I like the fact that they are facing straight on the displeasure of a breakup. They've just got to do this ritual and then go out, have a good time, speak your piece, smash the bowl, and just move on. Exactly. And the whole idea of just remembering the good times, which hopefully you had more good times than just in the bedroom, because otherwise, whoo, that's an interesting relationship. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> but like being able to go back and be like, okay, this is the fun we had. I also find this person fun. Goodbye. <laughs> Uh, maybe humans and self-conscious humans like Bashir are not particularly suited to it because he's immediately like, what? There's somebody else? Yeah. Uh, it's, like, hey, it's too late, buddy. You smashed that bowl. It's over. Exactly. Sorry. Coulda, woulda, shoulda. But that kind of clean break, so to speak, I think would be good for some people. Ooh, that's actually a pretty nice analogy with the breaking of the plate. Just a clean break off. Somebody who does not face things head on in this episode is Worf. And mm-hmm. I guess he plays soccer head on, but we can talk about that in a little bit. <laughs> oh, too he, soon. He really... <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's a complicated guy, you know. He was grew up on Earth uh, after his Klingon parents were killed. Uh, he's a child of uh, human culture, but also Klingon culture, which is fairly savage. It works for them. He's really being a jerk in this episode, and I think whatever culture you're in, he's being frankly emotionally abusive. Exactly. Like the way I see the Klingon people, sure they hold honor in the highest regard, but. They seem like a partying group. Like, it seems like they would have fun and be very, you know, open with just camaraderie with people that you know. And I I don't know if it's maybe because they were trying to mix that human and Klingon culture or what it was. But even the story that they gave Worf to tell Dax, 
for me, that doesn't even justify him doing all this stuff yeah. about being so controlling. I've always wondered about his kind of buttoned up Klingon style. And he seems to, you know, most of the Klingons we see, like you said, they're sloshing blood wine everywhere. They're headbutting each other. And I, when we see Worf go to um, the Klingon monastery um, in the TNG episode, Rightful Air, he almost seems to fit in more with like the sedate introspective monks. And I wonder if there is, if that's like, like an Orthodox version of uh, being a Klingon, you know, or, or the opposite, like taking that idea of honor to the ultimate where it's just, you are contemplating that idea and you're not going out and being dissolute and getting drunk and maybe stabbed, you know, in a bar fight or something. He's just, he's saving himself. (laughs) uh, And we'll talk about that too, uh, (laughs) for the the big battle or something special or whatever his destiny is. That's the only thing I can think of. Cause otherwise it's like, yeah, his parents are also, you know, they're, they're the parents from Fiddle on the Roof, like his earth parents. They're like, hey, how's everybody doing? And they're giving people hugs and they're talking to Chief O'Brien. So I wonder, he's like the guy whose uh, mom and dad were hippies and he grows up to be like a, a, a you know, a bookworm or a stockbroker or something like that. Exactly. Just the most dry. Straight arrow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But like, even with that, though, the way he tries to control Dax, it's not like he's trying to control himself. He's now pushing his feelings off on other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just, oh, I don't know if they could justify that. Yeah, we have a lot to talk about, he says several times. Exactly. Like, I feel like he would just be like, okay, enough. Go into that turbo lift and we're going to work this out. Right. Yeah, you think with all the breaking ribs and stuff like that, they'd be working something out, but I, I guess they don't talk much. We Go all know... room and just have a route. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the, the marital fighting chamber they need uh, at home. Oh, you know Klingons have Two out of three falls. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we all know or possibly have been the jealous partner in a relationship, and it seems so important to a person who's suspicious in a relationship to get to the truth. But people in the 21st century are supposed to be probing and even tempered and and you know at least the heroes of trek that we see are and i don't know like Worf is a very disciplined person but the yeah the way that he kind of flies off the handle is is strange and i'm thinking and tell me what you think about this i think that Worf really likes sex you know what from just the klingon side of it I feel like there's an inherent nature to that. But yes. <laughs> also, just like from watching him in TNG and now into Deep Space Nine, I, I still, yeah, I get that vibe. Yeah, but I also, yeah, but I also think that it's kind of like, I don't, I don't want to pick on anybody, but it's sort of like, um, like a, you know, Orthodox a Catholic person, you know, or an evangelical Christian yeah. who like is going to put this off and they, they think sex is so important. And I'm not saying that their, their beliefs are bad in that regard, but like they want to save it up. And then they, you know, the first person they meet, they marry and probably have a lot of sex exactly. and find out that they're not good together. And it just leads to more problems. And he's so, he really likes sex, but he is super buttoned up. And he tried to marry Kalar like the first time that they, you know, did it in the holodeck. <laughs> and she's like, what? No, 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 no. Yeah, doing uh, that. Yeah, exactly. I like, And that's where he's kind of stunned. I think. Yeah, yeah. His yeah. emotional development. Yeah, and he's and he's not like a real like personable guy, <laughs> like as yeah. it is. It's, it's I can see that he has trouble talking about stuff. We, you know, we learn over the course of the episode about this story of his childhood where he like killed this kid while they were playing soccer, and it's tragic. And I understand that that 
I guess I can see how that would lead to, we kind of get like the world of cardboard speech from him that Superman gives where it's Uh, like, I can never, you know, go full on because people get hurt, you know, and I have to live a life of restraint. Uh huh. It's like, okay, well, that, that is an excuse. Yes. But uh, you're doing some Olympic level transference here in like getting mad at Dax (laughs) and then trying to join the essentialists and do, do a geostorm. Exactly. Like, you don't want to hurt people, but I'll bet you there was probably at least one person out there kayaking when there suddenly was a lightning storm and maybe got struck by lightning. Yeah. So yeah. that's just how the weather It's gone works. beyond your relationship here, buddy. If you break the weather grid, <laughs> of course, lightning can strike anything now. Right. So you, someone's getting electrocuted. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> And I also, I don't want to nitpick, but Worf is what? Like in his mid-30s, maybe? Uh, the kid, his neck broke? I've seen them fix a broken neck on the show before, right? What? Where was the soccer game? I mean, heck, they fixed Worf's spine. Like, yeah, right. Yeah. There was that repressed memory during that entire. Yeah, they pulled his spine out and like <laughs> spun it around and put it back in him. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. So anyway, it, that was a very iffy part of the episode. <laughs> I yeah, I felt like at that point they knew they needed. Something we needed to find out, you know, this is the I never learned to read part, you know, we needed to know something about Worf. And the first thing you come up with is like, he's got a big head. I may hit somebody in the head with his head. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, no, guys, really, what are we going to do? Three hours later. We're going with the head thing. Yeah, we have nothing else. (laughs) We got nothing else. So we're doing the head thing. Yeah, he is, he's really off the chain here. Um, I do, but to be fair, he walks in on Dax doing a ghost with Vanessa Williams. Oh, um, gosh, yeah. <laughs> I, can see, I can see how this looks. Um, but the essentialists are fascinating to me. Not like, they seem like they're a real drag. Like, I don't want to spend any time with them. But mm-hmm. I love the idea that in a group like that exists in the Federation. And hopefully up to, but not including the point where they come in with guns and threaten everybody. And yeah, they're not loaded, but that's violence. You are doing violence to people. Don't do that. Exactly. But I love the idea that they exist, that there are these differing philosophies and thought, even in this federation. Not everybody is just a, a mindless lotus eater who's just enjoying like their Epicurean pleasures, <laughs> uh, although they came to the to the center of the universe for, for that. Um, but I like the idea that they they have that. And then the people in the federation are like, do you want to check this out? All right. And they go and they listen to it and they go, eh, this is not, not for me, but I'll do your thing. Exactly. And that's just, I would hope that that's how dissent operates in the Federation. Yeah. And I think, you know, being 2020 in a political year, I well, wish people would just go listen and then make up their own minds. Yeah. <laughs> like, and yeah, absolutely. that is totally something that would happen in Star Trek. You would have these groups that have these opinions and then, you know, being the scientific officers that you're trained to be, you know, okay, well, I'm going to make up my own mind. You do you until you hurt someone. Then we're going to arrest you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or just a certain talking to at least. Like these guys get away with just about murder as it is. Yeah. And in the in the Federation, you've got some things that are fictional at this time in our world, which is um, access to accurate uh, information. Um, mm-hmm. Also a uh, – what I imagine to be – there has to be people in the Federation who are not in Starfleet that are like – yeah, I just like soccer, man. I just like not getting my neck broken. I don't know anything about science. Yeah. But we, it seems like everybody kind of reads like Omni, you know, like everybody in the Federation is interested in in science and all these fruits of the labor of being have, being a spacefaring civilization. So you, you put those two things together and all that's left is just personal philosophy. 
all that's left is for a crabby guy to go who got stood up for a date, I'm, I'm assuming, and was like, I think sex is the problem here. This Jem and I are going to come over the hill. And we're all going to be boning and uh, they're going to put guns to our heads. And so that's just like, it's not based on like, you know, fake news or, or false reporting anything. Like all of his assumptions are his assumptions. And there isn't anything that needs to be falsified because it's just his like personal philosophy. It's a, it's a spacefaring school of Athens. Just that some of the people are like, come on, dude, really? Like, just I'm just trying to have a, a, fr a fruit Sunday here. Come on. Exactly. You know, in some ways, I think those groups, they were to happen and form that way with people who have those thought processes. It would be so much harder to get them to change their mind because they came to that ideal, uh, like ideal thought process yeah. on their own. Yeah. No one else influenced that. So they fully believe that they are right in yeah. every essence of their being. There's no le level for doubt. So well, that could be a little more difficult. Yeah, I guess so. And of course, the Federation is made up of, um, well, like uh, America, of different civilizations with their own cultures who all agree to a, a baseline set of like, you know, morals and ethics and yeah. operating procedures. And it's worked out well so far. Yeah, you have such a melting pot there with different species, let alone the different types of religion and the humans. I think everyone just yeah. kind of realizes, oh, this would be exhausting. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, you're going to tell an Andorian what to do? Come on, no way. <laughs> no, no way. way. Those, yeah, you wouldn't He's even want to go up against an Andorian, let alone tell them they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> right. Don't you guys want a warmer planet? We can fix that now. <laughs> Don't you dare. <laughs> No, don't touch it. Don't do it. Uh, <laughs> uh, so anyway, I think, you know, the moral of the story is like communicate with your partner and, uh, and that's yes. a good thing. Well, like even if Dax had said, okay, Worf, I'm going to go hang out with this girl. We're going to go mold some clay. You're more than welcome to join. Like just simply saying, okay, I'm going to do this rather than have him like somehow stumble upon him. Like that probably would have helped a lot. <laughs> yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Okay. That's possibly a small uh, transgression or, or mistake. Yeah. On her part. Like, I feel like that would probably just compound eventually and that maybe would tip Worf over the edge, but it seems like he just went from not to a hundred on this overbearing scale. Hmm. It might lose its, um, its sort of power in terms of its message, which I think everyone involved agrees it didn't land anyway, <laughs> but what if they went like full sex farce on it? I feel like they tried to do this in the Enterprise episode of uh, when they went to Ryza, but mm -hmm. instead it's just Trip and Malcolm like doing the <laughs> SNL swingers scanners oh the whole God. time. It just doesn't. I don't think it's very good. That episode. Oh <laughs> my god! But what if you keep getting like, yeah, Worf keeps walking into situations, and Dax is like, no, it's just, it's, it's fine, it's fine, and the, it's like a Three's Company episode. Like it just gets more and more ridiculous. <laughs> Uh, until they finally have to have a confrontation. I don't know, maybe that would have worked better. Exactly. Like, oh, I'm so sorry, Worf, all of our clothes just spontaneously oh, combusted yeah. <laughs> because the weather grid turned the temperature up momentarily. Right, yes. <laughs> Static electricity just tore our clothes off. Stolly zapped You it. know that's real. Get the tricorder. It's a real that's thing. That's how you can justify war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It's like, what is going on here? <laughs> uh, and I'd also say that um, I like... I think it's an unwieldy title for sure. And it's weird that it's a biblical illusion. There aren't a lot of uh, titles like that in Star Trek, but they're clearly calling on an earlier uh, tradition, not only of um, of a religious idea, but also a um, a societal idea, which is just, just stay in your yard. 
Exactly. Yeah. And I, that's kind of how I go about my life is you don't hurt me. I don't hurt you. You do what you do. Right. <laughs> if you don't like the weather, then, well, I might not be friends with you, but still. Right. <laughs> I'll still tell you to get out of the way of that, that tornado. <laughs> exactly. I will make sure that you don't get hurt. Yes. You're welcome. <laughs> Now that we've reached the end of the episode, let's talk My Space Dad Can Beat Up Your Space Dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? Oh, favorite captain is definitely Janeway. Because uh, you take any other captain, you take Kirk or Sisko or Picard, and you throw them 75,000 light years away from Earth, Like I feel like they'd probably not handle it. Uh, the same way Janeway did, for good, for better or worse. But I think Janeway's handling of it probably saved their lives. Well, most of them. There were some unfortunate casualties. But yeah. <laughs> just on a pure, based off of how the other captains probably would have handled it, like Kirk probably would have been, oh, well, we're all going to die here because Warp 5, not that fast. So let's all just recolonize a planet and start a new human society where all the women. Uh, yeah, or- yeah. Like Picard would try and assemble a new federation and rather than head back through that dangerous space or, you know, play with Q and be able to get back instantly. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe Cisco would have fought his way through, but there might have been more casualties. Janeway just was pretty even. And Archer, poor Archer, I, he, he would just be like, uh, oh, gosh, we don't even know about this kind of space right now. <laughs> yeah, he'd pull up to like the Kazons and be like, Hi, my name's John Archer, and I'm, oh my God, they're taking our ship. We're done. We're done. They took exactly. our ship away. Let's be honest. The case I wouldn't even bother with the original Enterprise. Yeah. They'd be, <laughs> <laughs> they'd be like, what is that? Is yeah. that a shuttle? Put it up on blocks in their yard. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little ornament. That's it. Cisco, <laughs> Cisco would have done the thing that everybody always says that Janeway should have done. He probably would have been, we're going for the wormhole. And then they just try to cut across, you know, to the to oh, the yeah. gamma quadrant to get to the wormhole there and see if they can bop back. But I, I totally agree with you. I, th- I said very recently on the show that uh, outside of James Kirk, I think that Captain Janeway is probably um, like the the exemplar of a Starfleet captain, the Ur captain. You know, she's the oh, person yeah. who has compassion, but is by the book, but also contains that um, that very Kirkian uh, sense of uh, I don't, I don't put up with bullies, uh, mm-hmm. and I also don't like injustice. And so I'm maybe going to bend the rules here if nobody's looking to help <laughs> these people. Um, yeah, she's really like the most capable. Captain, I think. Also, at every station, she can do all the stuff, and yeah, she's exactly. Great. She is like the Swiss Army knife of captains. Yeah, yeah. She can do anything, and she can have fun. Ride of Chaotica would not work <laughs> with any other captain. That is true, and it makes me wonder if she went to Riza, uh, would she have fun there? Oh, she probably. She probably took her dog, and like they were just yeah. running around the green fields. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, I could totally see that. That's interesting. Um, what was uh, Kate Mulgrew's drink when you uh, did the uh, cocktails with Kate? Oh gosh, I don't remember. Okay. I like I don't drink at all, so I probably wouldn't even be able to know if I did mm-hmm. remember. Mm-hmm. Okay, probably I'm just wine. To... Yeah, that makes sense. I Seems like a drink Catherine Jane would go for. Yeah, just to just to chill out a little bit. It's hearty, like coffee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely a red. Yeah, a, a dark red. Well, now that we've reached the end of the show, you'll receive a commission and the rank of ensign. What department on the ship do you work in? Ooh, 
I don't care as long as it's scientific. Sure. (laughs) I would not be a good security officer. Yeah. (laughs) Although they have a lot of tools to like equalize size differences and stuff like that. You could have like a, uh, you know, a small, a Ferengi could take a guy down with a, with a stun gun or something like that, I suppose. I would still be awful. I'm a terrible <laughs> shot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would need like auto aim and, oh, it just, it would, it would not be a good situation for the ship. <laughs> Put the cheat mode on, on the, on the phaser. Yeah. It just kind of does everything for you. Yeah. Easy mode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hit the easy mode. Well, Anton Nicola, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. Uh, I had a lot of fun. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Absolutely. If they want to know everything nerdy and weather about me and occasionally get a forecast for Sioux City, Iowa, they can follow me (laughs) at weather underscore Katie on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or if you just want my nerdy fandom forecasts, when I can eventually start filming them again, thanks, COVID, uh, you can follow me at forecast underscore fandom on Twitter, or I have a YouTube channel called So Many Fandoms. It's the one with a lower number of followers than the other one apparently named that same channel name, but it does have some really cool stuff, and it has all my fandom forecasts. That's great. And I have to say that you're a great follower on Twitter. You post about uh, nerd stuff sometimes, but you also post a lot of fascinating things about weather phenomenon and what's going on and some of your exploits uh, out you know, chasing storms, and uh, it's fascinating. Oh, well, I'm glad you think so. I, uh, I'm actually running a story on the smell of dirt. So if that seems interesting. The smell interesting, of dirt. Ooh. <laughs> I, I made a three-minute news story on it, and it actually turned out pretty interesting in my book. We'll let Twitter decide once it's posted. <laughs> okay. All right. Yes. Let Twitter be the arbiter. But Yeah, definitely follow her on Twitter. And we are signing off until the next mission, Hailing Frequencies Closed. And I'm Caliban. And we're the hosts of the Sailor Noob Podcast. I'm the expert. And I'm the noob. You're talking into the wrong end of the microphone. Aye, aye. Okay. Every week we watch a new episode of Sailor Moon and learn about monsters, fashion, food, culture, and of course, the Sailor Warrior of Love and Justice, Sailor Moon. All right. Now, what is her rank? Is she an admiral or a rear admiral? Okay, shh, shh. The ad's almost over. We're a couple of magical people, and every week we moon prism power make up a new episode. Please stop that. Sailor Noob is available every Friday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Shiver me timbers. Daddy.